On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room, opposite the entrance of the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. May we be blessed by the reading of God's word this morning. You may be seated. Good to be here with you all this morning. Just a way of a few announcements, and then we'll get started here in Esther chapter 5. On this year, we will resume our annual Thanksgiving dinner. That's uh, November the 21st, uh, September the 21st, following uh, the worship service. Uh, the, host, the hostess committee is requesting that we need five people to fry a turkey, bake a turkey, whatever you want to do to a turkey. Uh, we have five turkeys that will be available uh, this Wednesday evening um, uh, during our uh, prayer gathering. So if you are interested in making a turkey, baking a turkey, frying a turkey, uh, come see me, find Tracy, um, and we'll get you a turkey on Wednesday evening. Um, so please, uh, we need volunteers for that. But mark your calendars, November the 21st. Uh, we will have our uh, annual Thanksgiving uh, dinner together following the services. The only other announcement uh, is about our youth pastor. We have uh, we are now formulating a search committee for that search committee to go. We voted that on Wednesday night. We'll go use that search committee. We'll then go and begin to find and pray through um, applications uh, as they see fit. So let's go before the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to be with us in this service this morning. You pray with me. God, thanks for this morning. Thanks for allowing us to come into your house again to worship you, to fellowship with one another. I pray that we would uh, feel the Holy Spirit as he is in our midst and that the Holy Spirit would do what only he can do. And that is to bring salvation, whether that's justification or sanctification, that each of us this morning would leave differently, that we would leave one step closer in our holiness and towards you. So we plead that. We offer, as Paul says, our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to you for your perfect will, to have your way in this place this morning. And again, this morning, God, we come on behalf of this body and plead with you that you would lead us to the right person uh, to be 
the youth pastor, that you would prepare that person for us and you'd be preparing us for that person. I pray for this search committee, God, that you would pour out your wisdom on them as they now have the task of going and interviewing and of finding uh, that person. But God, more importantly, I pray that uh, you would just bring them to us. It would be so clear uh, from you uh, who that person would be, that there wouldn't be uh, much discussion or angst around that. It would be so clear that your hand is on this person and your hand is on this church. So we plead with you uh, for that. Now, guys, we come to your word, your inspired and errant infallible word. We ask that through the Holy Spirit that you would open our minds and our hearts and our ears to receive your word. And that through your word, God, we'd be encouraged, we'd be strengthened, we'd be renewed, be sent out into this crazy, lost world. uh, That we would be beacons and light and salt, as you've called us to, uh, to bring hope, the hope of Christ, uh, to this uh, community and beyond. So again, we offer ourselves to you, a living and holy sacrifice. Have your will in this place and in our lives this morning. We pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and take this jacket off already. We are here in Esther chapter 5. If you've been with us, we've been looking at the book of Esther. Esther is a very unique book. It's Uh, One of only two books in all the Bible that God's name is not mentioned. There's nothing about God in this whole uh, book. There's no uh, really even, we talked last week about fasting, but it doesn't even talk about prayer. We're assuming some things onto the text and into the text uh, based out of history, based out of all that we've studied and read and know about the book of Esther. Esther is a book that God has given to us to show us about his providence, that he is in control of all things, that he is not just uh, on his throne looking down upon us, but he is active in what he sees. So what we've said about this, about God, about the sovereignty of God, the providence of God is this, that God not only sees all things, but God interacts with all things. So we don't have this distant God, we have this very relational God that's in our midst and working and doing things uh, that we'll never see. We used the analogy a few weeks ago. He is putting together this beautiful tapestry of salvation, and all that we get to see oftentimes is the backside of the tapestry where it looks like a complete mess, until the end when you turn it around, that cross-stitch around, and you see what the artist intended for that piece to look like. That's so true of what uh, maybe most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, experience this morning. Like, where is God in all of this? Where is God in our divorce? Where is God in our marriage? Where is God in the loss of children? Where is the God in the loss of on and on we go? And we hear, feel that angst, but thanks be to God, He does not feel anxious the way we do. That God is interweaving all these things for two things, for His glory and for our good. All things, and you've heard it this morning, I believe, in your Sunday school, that God works all things out for what? His good. Now, we don't have to understand that completely. We just have to come to believe that. We believe that because we want to study and read God's Word. God's Word is full of His promises. 
do we believe in the promises of God? If we believe in the promises of God, it will help us rest in our anxieties that God is working all things out for his glory and for our good. I know it often seems like God is far and distant. But God is in our midst. He promised us that when he left. Uh, Jesus himself said that when he left. Lo and behold, I will always be with you to the end of the age. He then promises us his Holy Spirit. He says, I'm going to give you a comfort that, that will always be with you. And so my prayer is that this morning, my prayer through this series has been this. Do we believe in the providence of God, the sovereignty of God? That it's for the glory of God and for the good of us, his creatures. And so here we are in the middle of the book. It's only got 10 chapters. We'll cover 9 and 10 together because chapter 10 is very brief. So, so we don't have very many weeks left. We'll, we'll pause for Advent and come back and finish up at the beginning of next year. But here we are in chapter 5. In chapter 5, I'll kind of give some background of how we got to this point. Chapter 1, if you want to, you can turn over just a few pages. Chapter 1 is the introduction of the book. Chapter 1 is our introduction to what God is doing. And what God is doing is simply this. Esther's been given to us to remind us that God wants to redeem his people or to set his people free. If you remember, the Jews are in uh, exile. Some have been disobedient when God called them out. And of, of, about 15 million Jews remained in the land. And so God is wanting to redeem his people, to bring his people out of exile. You, you see this throughout the Bible. God's people run from God and God in his goodness continues to pursue them to set them free. That is what you and I, God has done that for you and I. God pursued you and me before we ever pursued him. He knew we were in bondage, so he sent his son Jesus to redeem us and to come and rescue us out of that. That's the theme of the Bible, and that's the theme of Esther. And so here in chapter 1, we see King Xerxes were introduced to him. He's the most powerful man in the known world. And in chapter 1, he's throwing this massive party, a six-month party, to celebrate all that he's accomplished and to invite people to come and worship him. At the end of the six months, he says, hey, this worship for me, this celebration for me isn't enough. Now let's invite everyone from this city to come into this party. And he does that. And at the end of the party, he says to his queen, his wife, hey, come and parade yourself in front of all these drunk men. She says, I'm not having that. I'm not doing that. And he says, okay, well, we're getting a divorce and you're out of here. That's the Todd International version. That's not exactly how it says, but I'll summarize. So here we are at the end of chapter one. King Xerxes divorces his wife and he is without a wife. Flip over to chapter two. Chapter two, we know this, that there's been some time that had passed between the divorce of his wife and chapter two. In the middle of that, you know through history that he had tried to go and conquer Greece. And trying to conquer Greece, he loses the war. He comes home defeated. He comes home to an empty home. He's looking for encouragement. He's looking for someone to um, just be with him through his losses. And his wise men, those young punk kids, say, hey, what's best for you is go find a wife and she'll comfort you. And then we have the Parisian bachelorette. All these bachelorettes, these virgins throughout all the land come before the king 
And the king picks out Esther to be the queen. Here we can see the hand of God moving. Even though it doesn't seem like it, even though we don't see it blatantly in the text, we see God's hand moving to put this one Jewish girl in a place of power and position to bring relief to God's people. At the end of chapter 2, Mordecai is introduced. Mordecai is who presented Esther and said, Esther, you need to go into the land where the king is and be there as his queen. And so Mordecai lets this young girl go. And at the end of chapter 2, Mordecai is sitting at the gates having conversation with Esther, but he overhears this conversation about the two of the eunuchs of the king. And they say, hey, let's kill the king. And Mordecai hears that, tells Esther that. Esther then takes that information to the king. The king realizes it's true, promotes Mordecai into this lofty position. You see the hand of God moving to bring relief. Chapter 3 is where Haman, this is where we'll talk about this morning, Haman uh, gets promoted where you think it'd be Mordecai. Haman gets promoted to the second in the land, the vice president of all the land. uh, And he is an arrogant, prideful man. And in his pride, he says, I want everyone to bow down to me. So everyone does that except one Jewish man, Mordecai. And he's furious, so furious. He says, not only am I going to kill you, but I'm going to kill all 15 million. It's the first genocide of the Jewish people that we see. He's the original Hitler, if you will. Mordecai hears this. And this is where we began last week. And we'll get to chapter 5 this morning. Chapter 4 is where he brings that information to Esther. It says to Esther, hey, this is the plan. This man wants to kill all of us. He wants to annihilate us. You need to take this information to the king and tell the king about our future. We'll see again this morning that Esther, with at first, is in great fear and doesn't want to do it. She basically says, hey, you don't understand what you're, put, you're putting upon me to do. And then at the end, we now see in beginning here in chapter 5, and this is what scholars say, we can see two things, and we'll do a case study on these two people this morning. The case study will be Esther's identity versus Haman's idolatry. So Esther's identity versus Haman's idolatry. So at the end of chapter 4, Esther prepares the people for a three-day fast. And she says in verse 16 of chapter 4, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, that's the capital city, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat and do not drink for three days and nights and day, and I and my young women will do also the same. And then she says these few words, and we begin to see the true identity of Esther come out. She says, if I perish, I perish. And now in chapter 5, we start to see the identity of Esther. So she's becoming to become part of her true identity, a woman that loves God, a woman that's going to be obedient to God. And we see that in her character. It says this in chapter 5, verse 1, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robe and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. 
There's great detail in this passage of chapter 5 about what's happening, the scene that is being set. Remember the scene that was in set in chapter 4. Esther says to Mordecai, hey, I can't just walk into the king's courtroom and tell him anything because if I just walk in there without being invited in there, they're going to cut my head off. So she has this angst about being obedient to what God had called her to, the reason that God had placed her in this kingdom. And Mordecai even says that, hey, Esther, for such a time as this, maybe this is the exact reason that God has placed you in here. And with fear and trepidation and timidness, she says to Mordecai, I'm not sure that's a good idea. Then she says, hey, let's hold a fast. Let's pray to God that God would give me the courage to do what God's called me to do. So for three days, the people of God, the church, is praying on behalf of Esther that Esther would have the courage to do what God has sent her to do. I could pause there and just talk about that. I shared some last week about that. Now ask this question, I'll ask it again. How often do we as a church fast and pray for one another? To have the courage to do what God's called us to do. Every one of us, if you're a believer, has been stamped out by God to live on mission for God, to live in this crazy world. And the mission of God for all of us is to what? Paul says it, Jesus says it, that we would have the ministry of reconciliation or that we'd have the ministry of being evangelists or witnesses. The reason that God has redeemed you is first for his glory and then that you would be a spokesperson, I would be a spokesperson for his glory into this lost world. Now that's terrifying. And I just wonder, church, are we pleading on behalf of one another that God would give us the courage to do what God's called us to do? We don't need the equipping piece because Paul himself says it. Jesus himself says it. I will give you the very words you need if you depend on me. Remember, I ended last week with this this saying. Would we be what? First, obedient to God and dependent on God. And how often do we need one another, the church, to rally around us, to be praying for one another, to be sent into this world? I would plead with you, I would ask you this. The reason that we do Wednesday night service is not because we want to have a meal and break bread together. The main reason that we do Wednesday night is what we call it. It's our prayer service. It's where we want to come together and pray together that God would allow us to be obedient and give us the courage to go into this world. So I plead with you, make it, mark it on your calendars. Come to Wednesday evening prayer service. We should have more people at that service than any other service because that's our dependence on the Lord, our prayer service. We need to be dependent in prayer that God will do something in our midst. Do we want God to work in our midst? Then we must pray to the God to be in our midst as he send us into this world. That's what we see here in Esther. It says this, on the third day, this is after the fast, what does Esther do? She acts in obedience with great boldness. She puts on her royal robe, the, the literal translation, she puts on her royalty and stands in the inner court of the king's palace. She says, okay, see, nothing has changed from chapter 4 to chapter 5. 
Chapter 4, she says, if I go before the king and the king does not invite me into the courtroom, there's the likelihood, most likely, my head's going to be cut off. But she's been having 15 million people praying on her behalf that God would give her the courage to do what God has sent her to do without knowing the results of what God's going to have her do. There's no promise. See, we know the rest of the book. We know that God spares her life. We know that God uses this woman to rescue the lives of 15 million Jews. She doesn't know that. She simply is being obedient through what God's called her to do because she's got 15 million people praying on her behalf to give her the courage to go stand before the king. And she acts in obedience without knowing the results. I think church for us so often, we want to know the results, therefore we'll act in obedience. So we wait and wait and we make sure all that goes on around us will set us up for success, will set us up to, to make sure it happens. There's no guarantees. We're called to be obedient, not called to the results. We're called to witness to people. And like I've said throughout this series, salvation does not rest on us, but it rests on the Lord. But God wants to use us as his mouth person. You may never see one salvation. You may use all the words and articulate all the words to lost people, and they may never come to know Christ. But that's not on you. That is on him. I promise this. God loves lost people more than you and I combined. How do we know that? He sent his son to die on a cross for them. So he loves lost people. He says in 1 Peter, I, I don't have a desire that any perish. But he wants to use his people to bring the message to those that he would save. Would we be obedient in that response? Esther is obedient in that response. She puts on her royal robe. She stands before the king. And then she says, it says this in verse 2. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she found favor in his sight. Remember, it had been 30 days since the king had seen his wife, the queen. Seeing her beauty and winning favor. I don't think that's just because he saw her. I believe that God did something in the heart and eyes of that man that day that captured him. And seeing Esther, he holds out the golden scepter in his hand, and then Esther approaches it and touches it. I wonder what relief must have felt on her that moment. Oh, whew. She touches it, and then the king says to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What do you request? And it shall be given to you half of all the kingdom. Here's her moment. This is Queen Esther's moment. I don't know about you, but if the king, and if I'm in that courtroom, and if I'm in before the throne room of the king, he tells me what my request is, I'm going to let him know the request right away. Would you not? But what does she do? She doesn't tell him the request. It's like, man, did you miss your opportunity? As in Esther says, it pleases the king. Let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I've prepared for the king. And the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. 
So the king and Haman came, Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. So here she knows the heart of her husband. She knows that he loves to eat and loves to drink. So she makes this meal for him, invites the king to come to the meal, and tells the king, hey, bring that other guy, your right-hand man, Haman. He, she's being patient. She's waiting for the perfect opportunity to share what God has laid on her heart to the king. He doesn't reveal her hand too quickly. The king, the king and Haman are at the feast. And it says this, And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said again to Esther, What is your wish? What do you ask for? And it shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. And then Esther answered, My wish and my request is. But again, she doesn't reveal her hand. Again, she's not anxious about what she needs to do. She is patient. I wonder, church, for us, how often God has placed something on our hearts to do, and through our anxiety we do it, rather than the peace of the Lord to do it. She had two opportunities within hours to present her request before the king, and the king said, I'll grant it to you. That's the promise. She sees the promise. And yet she is more trusting in God than she is in herself or even is the king. And it says, my wish and my request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, if it pleases the king, grant my wish and fill my request. Let the king and Haman come back to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king says. She says this. I would ask that you bring and come back tomorrow, and tomorrow I'm going to let you know my request. She's waiting patiently for the Lord to act on her behalf. There's so much in that text. There's so much that could be extrapolated from that text and that text alone, but we see the identity of Esther. She is what Paul would say in Galatians chapter 5. She's going to Live out the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, and self-control. For the first time in the book, for the first time in the character of Esther, we see Esther is more worried about God than she is of herself. Instead of making her request known, she's going to leave it in the hands of the Lord and invite them back to make that request known. My first part of application is this to us. Do we know our true identity? As Esther finally realized here in chapter 5, she was a daughter of the king, and the king, Jesus, was going to have her way through her regardless. And she needed to be patient and wait patiently for the Lord to provide her the opportunity to let her request be known. She trusted the Lord. She was obedient to the Lord. For the first time in the book of Esther, would we do the same? That's the first case study. She understood her identity. Now we move on to the second case study in the text, Haman. When we see Haman, we see 
his character, we see his identity, but we see his idolatry. What did he idolize? So here Haman is, he'd been invited that day to this great feast. At the end of the feast, he's been invited back to have this dinner again with just three people, the king, the queen, and himself. Nobody else. It's a special occasion. Think about that for a moment. If if the president or a great king invited just you to come and have dinner with him, that would be a special occasion. Whoever that person may be. If there's one person that you could think of on the planet today that you would want to have dinner with, who'd that person be? And that person were to call you. Say, hey, let's go have dinner. Just the three of us. Me, my wife, and you. That's what happens here with Haman. It says this in verse 9. Now we're going to start seeing the idolatry of Haman. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. I put, would put joyful and glad in heart in quotation. But look how long his joy lasted. Look how long his gladness lasted. It's momentary when it's not from the Lord. It's momentary when it's based on idolatry. It says, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he, was, he neither rose nor trembled before him, he, Haman, was what? Filled with wrath against Mordecai. Remember, Haman had set out a decree that every man shall bow to him. He leaves this amazing party with this amazing invitation, with this great joy, with this great gladness, walks around the corner of the king's palace, And who does he see sitting at the king's gate? Mordecai, his arch enemy. And within a moment, his gladness and his joy is taken from him. Again, I could just stop there and do a whole sermon on there. When anything on our hearts other than God are there, that joy and that gladness will last for a moment. Because what happens? There's always something that wants to rob us of our joy and our gladness, except for the Lord. And so here we see Haman burning, seething with anger. Could you imagine his face as he turned the corner with all this glee, with all this gladness, and Mordecai looks at him and basically says, whatever. Again, that's the way I interpret it. There's no fear, there's no trepidation, there's no movement of Mordecai, there's no bowing down. There's no sitting down. Mordecai basically looks him in the eyes and basically says, what are you going to do about it? And Haman is furious because of this man's defiance. Because why? Haman was so full of pride. His idolatry was pride, was ego. He's an egomaniac. Says this in verse 10, though. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with, within the king had, had honored him and how he advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. So Haman goes home, calls his friend, calls his wife and says, hey, let, let's recount and let's get back and let's bring back my ego because my ego's just punch, has just popped, and he brings his friends and brings his wife and recounts all how amazing he is. 
Now look at the response of his friends and his wife. I guarantee you this, if I invited my friends and Jenny to this kind of dinner party, I would not get the same response. My response would be way different. My prayer is your response would be way different. He says, and then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one put but me come to this party, the king, the feast she has prepared. And tomorrow also I'll invite, <clears throat> oh, I was invited by her together with the king. Verse 13. Yet all of this is worthless to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. We see the heart of Haman, his pride, his ego. He's so angry. He's filled with what we would call resentment. He's saying, all that I have doesn't matter because of this one man. Because this one man won't bow down to me. All this other stuff doesn't matter because there's this one thing that won't bow down to me. I wonder for us, church, if we're honest with ourselves, how often that's true in our own hearts. That we burn and seethe with resentment towards other people. And because we seethe and burn with resentment towards other people, we miss all that God's put in front of us. We miss the goodness of God. We miss the richness of God. We miss the riches that God pours out on us because of resentment. You see, resentment will always lead back to a place of idolatry. We see the idolatrous heart of Haman in this passage. He says, none of that matters. I just want this one man to die. And then he throws this party and his wife says this. And all of his friends say this. They don't rebuke him. They don't confront him. He said, let the gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hang upon it. Basically, he, it's this. Make this 75-foot pole and put Mordecai on the top of it and hang him on there so that everyone in the land knows how wicked this person is. That's the best advice he receives. Now, again, if I throw this party, invite Jenny, my friends to the party, and tell them, hey, there's this guy who won't bow down to me and won't worship me. I guarantee you this. Jenny's not going to say to me, hey, let's go hang that person. She's going to rebuke me and confront me about my pride. About my wicked heart. She's not going to play into my resentment. She's going to call me out of my resentment. She's going to call me to a place of repentance. That's the friendship that I have and I need. I have a mentor that says this. If I simply surround myself with friends that tell me what I want to hear, then I'm not being loved. His exact words are this. If I'm not being confronted about me, then nobody's loving me. I need people in my life to tell me when I'm off. And so do you. The greatest question any human being can ever ask another human being that loves you is this. What is it like for you to be with me? Not tell me what, what I want to hear. Not play into my idolatry. Not play into my resentment. But call me out of that to a place of repentance. You see, in that moment, if he had surrounded himself with a healthy wife and healthy friends, his friends would have said, hey, man, you're off. 
What's wrong with you? Like, it's not about you. It's about God and his glory. But Haman had surrounded himself with people just like him that wanted glory and wanted honor, wanted to rob it from the Lord. And so therefore, they gave him this advice. Hey, kill the man. The man that God's using to make you humble, let's kill that man off. We need men and we need women. We need a church that will tell us the truth about us and love us and keep us humble and keep us grounded. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 3 and Romans chapter 12. We ought not think too highly of ourselves. You see, when we think highly of ourselves, that's idolatry. Because what Paul is basically saying, when you think highly of yourself, you're elevating yourself into a place of the Lord. And that's what Haman was doing in his life. He wanted to be like God. He had no one in his life to bring him back to reality. And so it says this. Let's hang this man on this pole in the middle of the city. At the end of 14, it says then, then go joyfully with the king and feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made, period. Mordecai's fate doesn't look too promising, does it? Here's the second in command of all the land. Got an advice to go kill Mordecai. Again, where is God in this? How come God didn't intervene when he was having the conversation with his wife? How come God didn't intervene and bring other men into Haman's life to to set a a different course? Because God's working. God's acting. And God's about to do something in chapter 6 and 7 and 8. Now again, we know the end of the story. The end of the story is that, again, I'll break it to you. Next week and the week to come, Haman is going to be hung on the very pole that he erected in the middle of the city. With chapter 5 and 6, we don't know that. All that we continue to wonder is, where is God? And I would ask these two questions in closing this morning. Is our identity in who God is have to be a result of our circumstances of the results. Hey, if I know that this is how God's going to act, this is going to be my character. Or will it simply be, I'm going to be who God created me regardless of what the results are. No matter what happens, no matter where I'm at, I'm going to be the man or the woman that God's called me to be, and I have no idea what the results are going to be. And while I live my life that way, my greatest fear for us as a church is we're waiting to receive the results, and the results will depend on how we live our life. And the promise is this, we'll never know the results. But God has called us to live in obedience and dependence on him regardless of the results. So wherever you're at and whatever's going on in your life, And wherever you don't sense the hand of God, where your dependence on Him 
outweigh the results of what may come. Look at Jesus himself. Jesus knew the results. Jesus knew he would come and live a sinless life for 33 years. But Jesus also knew at the end of his life, he'd be betrayed, he'd be spat upon, his beard would be ripped out, he'd be humiliated, he'd hang naked on a cross. And yet he lived a character of obedience and dependence on the Lord with negative results. Like if there's anyone that's like, man, forget it, I'm going to wow out and live my life, it would have been Jesus. Like Jesus is like, I know how this is going to end, so I'm just going to be me. I'm just going to do me. But he's like, even though I know the results, I'm going to live a godly life. And my question to you and me, will we live that example? Will we witness Christ's example that in spite of the results, we'll live a godly life? Or will we live like Haman? A life that's dependent on idolatry. A life that's dependent on about him, 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 and him. Who will we be in this story? Will we be like Esther? Or will we be like Haman? Esther reminds us of Christ. Haman reminds us of ourselves. So the question is this morning, how important is your identity in Christ versus your identity in this world? Let me pray.